couple of interesting short stories that I read earlier this week. Thought you might find them uh, somewhat thought-provoking. One lady wrote, I don't think I'll ever forget an incident a few years ago while I was helping a, a friend of mine plant a tree at the local park. This friend had planted 23 trees in all, most of them without any help by herself. The trees were donated in remembrance of loved ones by family members. And while we were working on this particular tree, a woman approached us. I assumed that she was there to say thank you. Remember the tree you planted for me the other day, she asked. My friend nodded. You planted it too close to the road. It needs to be moved. And then she turned and walked away. I don't think this woman was intentionally rude. She was probably distracted or maybe she'd had a bad day. But the fact remains that out of 23 trees that my friend had planted all by herself, only two people had remembered to say, thank you. This one from a pastor who says that one spring afternoon, an older couple came to his church looking for some help. He said they were pretty ragged and looked to be pretty dirty and they claimed to be homeless. They said they didn't want money. They just wanted some food. So he said, I took them across the street to 7-Eleven and while they waited outside, I brought them each a, a sub sandwich and some chips and a Coke. And I watched as they ravenously attacked the food. The man took a big gulp of his drink. And then he made a face and he looked at me and he said, what is this, diet? Each of you feels the same thing. We hear something like this and, and there's, there's just something that goes on inside of us, isn't there? There's that sense of, come on, just a little gratitude perhaps? Maybe just a, a brief word of thanks? Yeah, it may be diet, but it's better than the nothing you had a few minutes ago. Or am I just being harsh? All right, except for Zach, you can all identify, right? <laughs> you know, I would guess that most of us probably grew up in a situation where, at least from time to time, that common courtesy was, was practiced and, and encouraged. It's a lesson that, uh, that we have found, most of us, that serves us well through life, and, and we try to pass that that lesson along to our kids, those of you who are parents, you remember those days. Some of you are still there with the young ones. Someone gives your child something and you're standing there or pays them a compliment. And they just look. And so the parent says, what do you say? What do you say? It's just the common courtesy of thank you. Sharissa still has to do that for me from time to time. My mom is famous in our family for giving gifts that nobody wants. A few Christmases back, I opened a gift for my mom. You know what's coming, don't you? And there were some Bud Light pajamas. In a big Bud Light can. 
that's right. I forgot about the gloves with the flames. Yeah, those were the same thing. It's like, why do I want these? And, and what am I going to do with these? And I mean, the obvious answer is, well, they're pajamas. You wear them to bed. Mom, you know, are, what were you thinking here? Of course, I didn't say that. And, you know, and Sharice is over there with that look in her eyes of, you know, say thank you. <laughs> Gee, Mom, thanks. Just what I've always wanted. Now, here's the thing. We, we understand, don't we, that, that those words thank you can be just a, a, you know, a social convention, a courtesy, um, appropriate for that reason, just to acknowledge a gift or a compliment, whether it's something we really wanted or not. Or it can be a genuine expression a genuine statement of gratitude that, that flows more deeply from within, not just the mouth. You know, the, the words are the same, but, you know, one, a social courtesy, the other, that means something more. The words sound the same, but the meaning is, is vastly different. And as, as Christians, I think, we understand that we're called as God's people to be a thankful people. You know, we, we know the drill. There are plenty of biblical exhortations to be thankful. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5. Everything. In everything. God got it. He means everything. In everything. Give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 5, early in the chapter Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, as God's people, there should be no obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, but rather thanksgiving, which is appropriate. Later on in the same chapter, sing and make music in your hearts. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Thanksgiving. Thankfulness, gratitude, we... We know that that's supposed to be a part of who we are, but I dare say that, that we still face that same struggle, even in our relationship to God. Are our words of thanks simply a social courtesy to God? A polite thing that we know we should say in the circumstances? Or do the words of thanks flow from our hearts to our Heavenly Father as a more sincere statement or expression of, of gratitude. I think this is a theme that weaves its way through our text this morning in Colossians. I think it's a, it's a statement that the Apostle Paul makes that if we, if, we, if we hear it clearly, if we understand what Paul is saying, then I'm suspicious that if we take what we understand and we begin to rehearse it more regularly in our lives on a daily basis, I think that perhaps if we struggle with that, that sense of gratitude towards God, that sense of social courtesy, you know, thanks God as the polite expression versus thank you, Father. I think if we can understand the truth that Paul is driving home here in this text, it'll help bridge the gap between those two things in our life and, and perhaps move us more consistently to that, 
that sense of, of heartfelt expression and, and gratitude. I think that's where Paul wanted the Colossians to move to. That's certainly where he would want us to move to as well. So I want us to stand and read our, our text this morning as we do every Sunday morning. And, and I want you to listen for a clue. Go ahead, you can stand. Listen for a clue for the reason that Paul expresses thanks to God. Okay? Listen closely. Here's a hint. Comes really early on. Let's read. Here we go. Oh, here we go. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all his people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true word of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated, please. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, When we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Why is Paul thankful? What did we just hear? What did we just read? Why is Paul thankful? We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And what's the other thing that he links to it? Love for all the saints. Did you get that? We read that together. Does that sound familiar? It's verse 3. If you've got your Bible open, one more time, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. As we noted last week, we're not sure whether Paul ever went to Colossae. 
Most folks think that he probably didn't. But something that is going on there, and remember, Colossae is that small, out-of-the-way market town that's not on anybody's map. And so, so remember, we wondered last week that Paul would just explode as we go further into this book, this, this, this complete Christology in terms of Christ, who he is, and the work that he came to do, why would Paul be so concerned that this small group of folks in this little backwoods place that nobody cares about be encouraged and know these things? Something is going on there that is important enough to pen this letter and to let them know how thrilled he is to hear about their faith in Christ and the love that they have for the saints, the love that they have for one another. Now, he expresses a similar comment in verse 6 when he says to them, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. The gospel is growing and bearing fruit among them. Paul is excited, obviously, that that they're bearing fruit. And that is that, that they're loving one another. They are reaching out to others because that is is evidence to Paul that they they really do understand the gospel that was brought to them by Epaphras. Remember, we don't really know who Epaphras is. But obviously he is a, is a co-worker, he is a partner in the gospel with Paul, maybe some of the other apostles as well. And he is the one who has brought them the truth about Jesus. Paul's excited that they, they're understanding the importance of, of, of loving one another. That the faith calls them to love one another. They get it. A little further down the passage we hear Paul tell the Colossians that that he's not stopped praying for them since that first day that he heard about them. And he tells them that he prays for them in this way, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. That's verse 10. Now, the idea of bearing fruit is a, is a common New Testament image. It's one that's, that is often used, as we know, of those who follow Christ. To bear fruit is to live life as a follower of Christ in such a way that others experience Christ in our lives and through our lives and as a result put their faith in Him and become His follower also. It is the fruit of of new life. The fruit that is that is shown in our lives as a result of relationship with Christ multiplies and becomes that same fruit in someone else and on and on it goes. That that's the idea. Remember the question that we ask from time to time, uh, what is it again that we're doing here? Uh, why exactly are we here? Why are we a church? It's all about the truth of the gospel, and bearing fruit 
that others might know Jesus as we do. But why do you think in this short passage does Paul keep coming back to that that theme and, and he links it so closely with love for one another? We know that most of the letters in the New Testament were written to believers living in different places. This letter to the Colossians is no exception. Most often, these letters were addressed to deal with particular issues, to bring certain teaching into a situation. Likely, many of these letters were addressed in response to a letter that was sent to the apostle or to the elder. We've got a problem here. What do we do about this? What do we do about this? And so, so oftentimes, we are pretty sure that these letters were in response to a situation that had been raised by those who were living there. This is true of, of Colossians, but it's difficult to know for sure uh, what exactly the struggle was. In the second and third centuries, you've, you've heard the word Gnosticism. Uh, the Gnostics were a, a group of folks that, that began to infiltrate the church uh, prominently. Uh, second and, and third centuries, there is, there is much that is written uh, to, to refute uh, Gnosticism. And, and we see a more uh, full-blown refutation of Gnosticism in, in John's uh, first of, of three letters near the end of the New Testament. With Colossians being dated somewhere around the, the, the mid-first century, um, Gnosticism wasn't a, a full-blown uh, cultic expression at that point, and yet most scholars believe that there was probably enough of, of the seeds of it around that, that that's what's beginning to happen to the believers in Colossae. It's, for lack of a better way of saying it, or, or maybe this is a good way of saying it, it it's, evidence, it's evidence of a spiritual battle. Whenever the gospel in its truth, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what Jesus has done, his person and his work, his deity and his atoning work on the cross, the incarnation of, of humanity and, and deity coming together, whenever that truth is espoused, you can be sure that the enemy and the forces of darkness will find their way to that place and begin to promote something different because it is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ that life is found. We've talked this morning, we've sung this morning about hope for the hopeless. In Jesus, there is hope. There is no other name. Paul said to the Romans, given among humanity, no other name by which people can be saved. So we start talking Jesus, we start talking the truth of the gospel, and you can be sure that the assaults of the enemy will come into play. And so that's what's beginning to happen here in Colossae. Gnosticism is, is just huge in terms of, of all the pieces of it, all the dynamics of it. I, I don't pretend for a minute to, to be an expert. The, the reading that you do about it is, is confusing. Let me try to just quickly boil it down to something that, that I think helps us make sense of what is happening here. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word, which means knowledge. Simply put, the Gnostics believe that the temporal realm in which we live, the earthly realm, the physical realm, was essentially evil. The spiritual realm 
It was good. There is sort of a, a platonic dualism there where there's, there's sort of a, a good God and a bad God. And, uh, and the, the good God controls the spiritual realm and the bad God controls uh, the, the, the physical or the temporal realm. And their path to salvation, again, this is, this is as Gnosticism has grown and developed into the second and third centuries, the path to salvation that was to, to release the human spirit from, from its, its bondage in the human body, the physical being evil, because it was, it was trapped. And that came through, for many of them, what was sort of a secret knowledge. Knowledge is power. We know the way to God. We know the way to salvation. Ultimately, what it led to, in many cases, is that Christ's physical life on the earth, the belief that Christ came to the earth, was unimportant. In fact, it was in some Gnostic circles, there's a little bit of evidence that that it would almost seem to be ridiculed. You know, how could anything good come out of a a man in a human body uh, to come and to suffer and to die? That... That is, that is not the path to salvation. Knowledge of the spiritual realm was what was most important. And so that what we find in some of the, the later writings regarding the life and the practice of Gnostics was, was sort of an extreme in terms of those who were, who were very uh, aesthetic in their practice, uh, discipline, uh, disciplining the body and... Uh, and rules and regulations. We'll see some of those addressed in the book of Colossians. Uh, there were those for whom, if it doesn't matter, if the body is, is, is evil, then, then just eat, drink, and be merry. Live like you want. There, there's not a connection between the faith that I claim and the life that I live as a believer. Does this make sense, any of this? Uh, it, it's kind of cloudy. It's cloudy in my head. But... Those are the more full-blown kinds of developments. And and in Colossians, there's just some seeds. Because again, Colossians is early. Mid-first century, probably 60, 62 AD. Somewhere in that vicinity. So, essentially what it boils down to is that the Gnostics would infiltrate these groups, these gatherings of believers, and begin to promote something that was fundamentally contrary to the gospel, which says that humanity is sinful, that humanity needs salvation, and that there is salvation found only through the life, death, and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And because they didn't believe that, as I mentioned a minute ago, they would live lives that were not connected between what they believed necessarily. There was, there was no necessary connection between what a person believes and how they live their lives in terms of, of uh, any kind of an example. That's fairly contradictory. Would you not agree to the Christian faith that, that, that we claim uh, <laughs> Jesus, uh, the apostles, somehow felt that there was a close connection between the way that people lived and what they believed. That's, that's the heart, in many ways, of our faith. So you can, you can begin to understand how some of this thinking was finding its way to Colossae. And again, here is this 
this young, this small congregation. And the apostle, you can almost just picture him, probably written from prison in Rome. You can just picture him chomping at the bit. Oh, Gnostics are at it again. You know, and firing off this letter to, to remind them of just how important it is to be a people who embrace the faith that they learned from Epaphras and to love others. Because you see, the logical outworking for many of the Gnostics was that if the body is of no consequence, or if the body is evil, or if it doesn't matter what we do, then it doesn't matter what I do with my body, it doesn't matter what I do with your body, I don't have to necessarily love you or serve you. or The emphasis that Paul brings to the Colossians is to say, true faith in Jesus Christ expresses itself in love and sacrifice and giving for others. That's why he is so excited and encouraging to hear about their love for all the saints. Make sense? So that's, that's what Paul is, is beginning to, to emphasize and, and to impress upon them. He, he would have agreed in principle with, with a number of, of the Gnostic expressions of spiritual knowledge being required for salvation, that human life is, is hopeless and damaged. Salvation is desperately needed, but he certainly would not agree uh, with how that problem is solved. He would not agree that it's, it's up to the individual to, to find a certain path of knowledge that will lead them out of the mess that they're in and find salvation and then live however they want. Paul says, no, you will not live any way you choose if you really understand what God has done for us in Christ. And here's where I think we get down to what is really important to remember in this first this first text that we have looked at together. He ends this section with these words that we just heard, but let me read them again. He, he reminds them of how important it is to joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul describes salvation here as a divine rescue effort. It's God's rescue effort of lost, hopeless, hurting, suffering humanity. And I want you to notice two truths that just jump right out at us in these verses. Verses 13 and 14. For He has rescued us. Think of those words. He has rescued us. Speaking to the believers in Colossae and speaking to us as well, Paul is very clear about where salvation comes from. It comes from outside. It doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from our own creative ideas. It doesn't come from our own search for knowledge. It doesn't come from our gifts and our abilities. It doesn't come from strategies that we have to live a better life. It comes from outside. It comes from God. And it is, according to Paul, his initiative, God's initiative. He has rescued us. 
Try as we might. Seek all that we want for the right spiritual knowledge. Look for the solutions. Paul is saying there is no escape. There is no getting out of the situation because we are captives in a dominion of darkness. It's a bleak picture that Paul is painting. And he's painting that picture on purpose. I read a story this week about a, a Bill Moyers PBS special uh, entitled Genesis some years ago. And uh, this writer was noting that, that panelists from diverse religious backgrounds were speaking to the issue raised in the first book of the Bible. Thus the name of the show, Genesis. And after the rest of the panel had sort of tiptoed around the problem of sin, that's, you know, the S word. Nobody likes that word. The problem of sin, which has beset humanity since the fall, one of the panelists, best-selling novelist Mary Gordon, got sick of all the political correctness. She said, come on, people just aren't right. There is something fundamentally wrong with us that we cannot fix ourselves. That's right. And that's what Paul is saying. We can't fix ourselves. We are trapped. We are captive in this place called the dominion of darkness. When Jesus spoke to his captors, his arresters in Luke, Luke chapter 22, he used this same word when he said to those, you are going about your business, the business of the darkness. Here were people who were coming to arrest Jesus doing the work of the enemy as captors of the dominion of darkness. Paul says, that's how powerful the dominion of darkness is. It holds people captive. Some, by God's grace, begin to have a sense of restlessness and a sense of, i got to change my life. Something is wrong. Something is amiss. I, I, I need something. God beginning to work through the Holy Spirit in their lives to begin to bring a sense of awareness of lostness and hopelessness and conviction. Others, others are not. But God has rescued us. And Paul is saying to the believers in Colossae, don't forget, this didn't come about because you're so wonderful. This didn't come about because you had a good idea or you had the, the secret knowledge. This came about because of the gospel that was preached to you, the same gospel that has been around since the beginning, since the life of Jesus this is the gospel. And it says that God has rescued us. And then notice the second thing. He rescued us and he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. I love that. Rescue wasn't enough. God didn't just pull us out of the muck and out of the darkness and, and give us an opportunity to then go on and just live life as we wanted to. You know, have a nice life. Think of me at Christmas. No, he rescued us out of the dominion of darkness and then he didn't put us in just a place of, well, you know, work it out now, you have a better chance. He put us into a new dominion, a new kingdom. He planted us in the kingdom of the Son whom he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In his amazing and mysterious love, God rescued us and he secured us and he transferred us to a safe place where we no longer are slaves to sin and the enemy. So let me ask you, 
Are we grateful for this? Or are we just offering sort of a socially correct thank you to God on occasion? The kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption specifically, the forgiveness of sins. So the kingdom where we now live our lives. And remember, we've learned about kingdoms. When it talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the Son that He loves, there is both a a now, a present, and a not yet, a future dimension to this. And Paul is talking here about the now. We now live in a place where all who are part of that kingdom are free from sin and free to live their lives. Guess what? In gratitude to God, demonstrated in their love towards others. Isn't that awesome? That is so cool. Couldn't do it before because we were captives in the dominion of darkness. What's loving others got to do with it? Unless loving others has benefit for me, then that's called using them for my sake. That's not loving others. Let me ask you this morning about your gratitude as a follower of Christ. Occasional thanks to God again for what he's done like it's no big deal. Or how about life's expression? Deeply felt gratitude because we're beginning to understand more and more what God has done for us in Christ. I've read to some of you, I know in the past, but it bears reading again. Amazing story that I think expresses so much of the truth behind this. But it's in the human realm that that we perhaps understand a little bit better. The story is... Tony Campolo, who was traveling in, uh, in Europe, London somewhere, and he was on the train, and there were two young men sitting across for him, from him on the train, and, and suddenly uh, the one man stiffened up and, and he fell out of his seat, and he rolled around on the floor for a bit, and, and obviously was having a seizure. The other friend went down on the floor next to this man who was struggling, and rolled up his jacket, put it behind his head, and took out a handkerchief and was was wiping the beads of perspiration from his face. And then he turned to Campolo and he said, he said, Mr. I please please forgive us. Sometimes this happens two or three times a day. My my friend and I, you see, were in Vietnam together years ago and we were both wounded. And I had bullets in both of my legs and he had one in his shoulder and the helicopter that was supposed to come for us never came to pick us up. And my friend, Mr. this guy picked me up and he carried me for three and a half days out of that jungle. The Viet Cong were sniping at us the whole way. He was in more agony than I was. I begged him to drop me and to save himself, but he wouldn't do it. He got me out of the jungle. He saved my life. I don't know how he did it. I don't know why he did it. But four years ago, I found out that he had this condition. So I sold my house in New York. I took what money I had and I came over here to take care of him. And he looked at his friend and he said, You see, mister, after what he did for me, there isn't anything that I wouldn't do for this man. Brothers and sisters, God rescued us out of the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. And it's in that kingdom we have found life as forgiven people, free to live with gratitude and love toward one another. I said earlier that I think there's a theme here that if we rehearse it on a daily basis, will move us from a casual, courteous thanks to God to a life of sincere, expressed, lived-out gratitude. I, I think this is it. I think we need to rehearse to ourselves on a daily basis. Add to your weekly reading of Colossians this assignment. 
memorize these verses for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has brought us into the son whom he loves in whom there is redemption and forgiveness of sins. Praise team, come on up and and lead us in our response this morning. Dale, yes. Absolutely. And doesn't John, the elder, say that very thing in his first of three little books in chapter four? If someone sees a brother or a sister in need and does nothing to help them, how can they say that the love of God is in them? How can they say that they know God? Answer, no. At least not consistently. We live in a fallen world and is my heart perfect? I know yours is, but mine is not, Dale. You know? <clears throat> but it's, it's, a, it's a matter of, yes, paying attention to the conviction and the leading that the Spirit of God brings to those who are God's redeemed. Amen, my brothers and sisters. Don't forget, keep reading Colossians. Memorize chapter 1, 13 and 14.